For the last two weeks, we've been looking at a very important and relevant question, relevant because of all the memberships and all the baptisms that have been taking place in the last couple of weeks. But this is also a very important question, and that is, what does baptism actually accomplish? And those of you who have been with us for the last several weeks will know that the answer to the question is multifaceted. That is, it can be described from several different angles. At the most basic level, we saw that baptism initiates a covenant relationship with the triune God and with each of the three persons in particular. We saw that in the complexity of this relationship, there are three different aspects, so to speak, and that each of these aspects corresponds in a very special and unique way by way of emphasis, to one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. As it pertains to the Father, we saw that this relationship is adoptive because we are the sons of God. As it relates to the Son, this relationship is marital because we are the bride of Christ. And today, what I want us to see is that as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, this relationship is ministerial because we are inducted into the universal priesthood of the church of Jesus Christ. And so just to summarize all three of these points together, uh, we can say that baptism is at one and the same time an adoption, marriage, and ordination ceremony. Baptism is at one and the same time an adoption and marriage and ordination ceremony. Now, this is a three-part series and Many of you might be coming in on the third part, and so you're missing uh, quite a bit of context. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first two messages, because that's going to fill in the gaps uh, for anyone who hasn't been here. But so far, we have looked at and developed in some detail the first of these two propositions, and today we are looking at the third and final proposition, and that is that... uh, As it pertains to the Holy Spirit, our relationship is ministerial. We are ministers of Jesus Christ uh, because we have been anointed with the Holy Spirit and inducted into the universal priesthood of the church. So today, as I uh, walk through this topic, as I present the material before us, just as I did last week, I want to do it in three parts, even though all three parts will not be equal. Uh, First of all, I want to show that in the Bible, the baptism of Jesus Christ is presented as his ordination ceremony. That's actually the most important part because we are baptized into Christ. So if we can establish what his baptism is, everything else fits together. So first we'll see that the baptism of Jesus Christ is presented, in fact, as his ordination ceremony. The second thing that I want to show is that our baptism, by extension, is also an ordination, and specifically for the New Testament church. And then finally, though I'll be a little bit uh, more brief here, I want to go back and reinforce the guidelines that we set up over the past several weeks about how we should think about this relationship in terms of objective and subjective realities. Uh, We are using what we call a covenantal framework And so that has both objective realities and subjective realities that correspond. So now let's look at this first point. 
And as we begin today, I do want to ask the question, how many of you here today have ever heard this proposition, that the baptism of Jesus was his ordination ceremony? How many people have actually heard that proposition? Maybe a few of you. I don't see a lot of hands. Um, So if it's new to you, that's okay. I want you to consider a very basic concept as we get started today. And that is that the word Messiah, that's in the Hebrew, or the Greek word Christ, literally means one who is anointed. So Messiah or Christ literally means one who is anointed. So the question now is anointed with what? And anointed for what? Well, in the Old Testament, there were three offices that God ordained. There was the office of the prophet and of the priest and of the king. So three offices. And whenever anyone was ever inducted into one of these three offices, he was anointed with oil. Uh, For example, you remember when Samuel came to Saul to make him the first king over Israel, he anointed him with oil. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, the Bible says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head. And he kissed him and he said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be commander over his inheritance? So here, what we find is that the oil is what's given on the part of man. So Samuel took the flask and he's the one who poured it on the head. We also see that in and through that ritual action, the Lord himself was giving his Holy Spirit There's the part of man in the pouring of the oil, and there's the part of God in the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. Now, we know this took place because when Samuel, right after he he poured the oil on Saul's head, uh, after he did that, he said, has not the Lord anointed you? So there's the part of man and there's the part of God. And then right after that, he told Saul in demonstration of this, that there would be several signs that he would see that would manifest and prove this ordination. And he said that one of those signs would be that the Holy Spirit would come upon him in a very special and powerful and even visible way. In verse six, he says, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will prophesy and you will be turned into another man. And let it be when you see these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. So the very first thing that you need to know is that in the Old Testament, the offices of prophet, priest, and king were messianic offices. These were the offices that were anointed with the Holy Spirit and that was signified and sealed by the pouring out of oil upon the head. And just so you know, let's, you know, a little bit of symbolism here. In the Bible, the oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And this is why oil is oftentimes when it's related to anointing or ordination is called the oil of gladness. And this is why in Hebrews chapter one, when the father is speaking uh, to the son, so you have the father speaking to the son and he's talking to the son about his kingship. And he says in verse nine, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So notice here that the whole statement is a reference to the fact that God the Father anointed his son, Jesus Christ, with the oil of gladness, the oil of the Holy Spirit, so that now Jesus is the true Messiah. He's the one who has the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says, without measure or above all of his fellows. And this is why John the Baptist was shown that it would be Jesus Christ alone who is able to baptize other people with the Holy Spirit. So what I'm giving you here is a very, very basic concept. It shows us that in some way and at some time, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit to be the Messiah. But when you begin to think about when that actually took place, it brings us to a consideration of the significance of his baptism. Because that's when the heavens opened. That's when the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that's when the Father poured out the Holy Spirit to anoint our Lord Jesus Christ for his ministry. The Holy Spirit came down out of heaven and rested on the Lord Jesus Christ. However, even though I've given you a basic structure here, I want to develop this in a little bit more detail. And I'll be up front with you. This sermon out of all three sermons is going to be the most technical sermon as we go through. So far, I've tried to keep it very, very simple. I'm going to do my best to keep it simple, but it will be the most technical out of all three. And that could just be because we are not as familiar with these concepts as we are with the concepts of adoption and marriage in Scripture. Ordination is a complex topic. So even though I've given you a basic uh, foundation, I want to develop this a little bit more because the baptism of Jesus is really jam-packed uh, with theological overtones. There's, there's a lot of little details that bring out the clarity of the picture that I'm trying to present here. And I want us to focus on uh, not just the general anointing, we see that taking place in his baptism, but specifically his ordination to the priesthood. So if Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, we want to we zoom in on the priesthood aspect of his anointing. So now we see, and, and I would argue actually that this is the most prominent feature of the baptism of Jesus, his priesthood. Uh, the other features are there, no doubt, and they are prominent, but I would say this is the most prominent, especially from the Gospel of Luke, of his baptism. So consider these uh, few details. First of all, consider that in the Old Testament, there was no age for a king. How old was Josiah when he began to reign? There was no age for a prophet, but there was a specified age that was required for the priest. And in several places, as you search the scriptures, you find that the training of a Levitical priest came in several stages. Uh, some of that training began at 20 years old. Uh, more responsibilities and privileges and duties came at 25 years old. And then later, when they were 30 years old, the priest was officially inducted into the business and occupation of the priesthood. That is where all of this gets very formal. And so we see that from a comparison of many passages. I won't go through those passages, but one passage is Numbers chapter 8, verse 24, where you see the age 25. And then also it talks about being 30 years old in Numbers chapter 4 
and verse 3. So why is all of that important? Well, it's because immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized, Luke makes it a special point to tell us his age. How old was Jesus when he was baptized? Well, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Now, this detail here is not insignificant. Everything that we find in the gospel records is there for a reason. And I would argue that Luke wants us to see a connection between the age of Jesus Christ in his baptism at the beginning of his ministry and the age that was required for the Old Testament priests to be ordained into their ministry as well. So this connection, he's drawing for us by this little detail. But there's more. Because you see, Luke is also very careful to give us the lineage of John the Baptist. So who's the one who baptized Jesus? It was John. And it's very interesting because Luke wants us to know something about both of the sides of John's family. It's almost as if he wants to emphasize that John the Baptist is in some way the culmination of the Old Testament priesthood. It's all culminating in John so that John can pass it on to the Lord Jesus Christ for its fulfillment and consummation. And I say that because, well, of course, he mentions his father and then he also mentions his mother. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, uh, Luke says, now there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the reason that's so interesting is that it shows the nature of John's baptism. You know, here we have this, this John who's out in the wilderness, he's preaching and he's baptizing. Why is he baptizing? It also shows that when Jesus came to John, he came to be baptized as the one who fulfills the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, you remember when, uh, when Jesus comes to John, and John said, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me for baptism? And Jesus said, let it be so for now, for in this way we must fulfill all righteousness. Uh, what you have there is the passing of the baton from one priesthood to the next priesthood, uh, from the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that transition takes place in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that transition point, and baptism is where it actually takes place. Now, another way you can see this connection with John's baptism and the priesthood of Jesus is in the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the chief priests, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. In Matthew chapter 21, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. And there, what is he doing when he cleanses the temple? Well, he's acting in his capacity as the great high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. That temple belongs to him. So he, when he cleanses the temple, he is acting in the capacity of his priesthood. He comes in, he sees the desecration of the house of God, and he takes it upon himself to fix the problem. 
And what, what, what does he do? Well, he starts flipping tables. He starts opening cages and letting birds out. Uh, he makes a whip of cords and he drives the money changers and the merchants who were selling there out of the temple. This is Matthew chapter 21. You got to read the whole context. Well, when the elders hear about this, you know, the Sadducees are the keepers of the temple. They're enraged. They're incensed. And when they come to Jesus and find him in the temple, now he's teaching. The very first thing they do is begin to question his authority for doing what he just did. In verse 23, it says that when they found him in the temple, they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now here, you, you might expect Jesus just to answer as the son of God, as God in the flesh. And what do you mean by what authority he could have said? Now, I'm doing this by my own authority. I am the eternal, natural, everlasting son of the living God. I mean, he could have said something amazing right there. Uh, but that's not what Jesus does. And notice that instead he turns the question around in a very interesting way. In verse 24, he says, I will ask you one thing, and if you can tell me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he says, the baptism of John, where was it from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? You see what Jesus is doing here? He knows that he is acting in the capacity of his priesthood because no one else has authority to go in and cleanse the temple like he himself is doing. And yet at the same time, if anyone wants to know where he got this authority, they first had to understand the nature of the baptism that he received from John. In other words, these are one and the same thing. To answer the second question is to receive the answer for the first one that the chief priests were asking. So at this point, we can see, I, I can develop this more, but let's, um, let's say that at this point, it's sufficient. We can see that the baptism of Jesus was his ordination ceremony because one, he received it from a member of the priestly family. Two, he received it specifically when he was 30 years old, and that's specified in the text. Three, on the basis of his baptism, he had the authority to cleanse the temple and then also, don't forget, but it was at his baptism that God the Father anointed Jesus with the oil of the Holy Spirit for the work that he gave him to do. So all of these things combined together give us a very clear picture of the nature of the baptism of Jesus. Now from here, I want to move along to our second point and show that because our baptism is a baptism into Jesus Christ... Our baptism is also an ordination ceremony of sorts. And there's a couple of things that I want you to see in this connection. Uh, first of all, I want you to see that several of the priestly ordination rituals of the Old Testament are carried over into the practice of Christian baptism. Let me say that again. This is technical, but it's important. Several of the priestly ordination rituals of the Old Testament are carried over into Christian baptism. And here, there's some overlap with what we just saw, but I'll try not to be too repetitive. I want you to pay very, very careful attention to how the Bible lays these things out. And um, consider it this way. When a priest was ordained to the priesthood in the Old Testament, at least, but not only, but at least three things took place. 
First of all, he was washed with water. Second, he was clothed with the priestly garment. And third, he was anointed with the oil. Now, if you look at Leviticus chapter 8, and I won't go into all the details in that chapter, you can see all of these elements are in the ordination of Aaron and his sons. This is the ordination ceremony of the Old Testament priesthood. After the Lord gives instructions for the ordination to Moses, he gives these instructions to Moses, we see how Moses takes Aaron and his sons and performs these actions. So if you're looking at Leviticus 8, is that correct? Yeah, Leviticus 8. Uh, I want you to look specifically at verses 6 and 7, and then also I want you to look at verse 12. Now here's what the Bible says. I'm putting all that together. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put upon him the coat and girded him with a girdle and clothed him with the robe. And then in verse 12, it says, and he poured the anointing oil upon his head and anointed him to sanctify him. So very clearly we see all three elements, the washing of the body, the putting on of a new garment and the anointing with the oil. Now here, I'm going to give you a parenthetical consideration. Just grab onto this because it will tie in. We, we also need to recognize that when a man was uh, inducted into the priesthood, a sacrifice, in fact, several sacrifices, but sacrifice always accompanied the ceremony. Okay, that, that's important. Um, and, and as you think about the fact that when a person was brought into the priesthood, a sacrifice always accompanied the ceremony, the question is, can you think of a reason why? Or even more than that, yes, even more than that, can you think of a reason why there was no sacrifice that accompanied Jesus' baptism if Jesus' baptism was his ordination ceremony? Further, maybe uh, I can ask you why there's no sacrifice that accompanies Christian baptism, even though I'm saying that Christian baptism is an ordination of sorts. Why, why is there no sacrifice connected with Jesus' baptism or ours? That's right, because Jesus Christ is himself that sacrifice. That's why John, when he first sees Jesus coming to the baptism, says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the great high priest, but he is the high priest who offers up himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. So there doesn't need to be another and different sacrifice because Jesus is himself the Lamb of God. Now, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here where many of these elements are brought together. The writer there tells us that you and I can be bold to enter into the presence of God. He says you should be bold. And boldness obviously refers to authority. Uh, how can I be bold if I don't have authority in the matter? Uh, the writer to the Hebrews in that same passage also says that we can be bold to enter into the Holy of Holies. Really? You and I can enter into the Holy of Holies? That means we have to be priests to do that. And then he also says that we enter in by a new and living way, which Jesus consecrated for us by his own blood. And then it says, through the veil, that is his flesh. The writer says that we have a high priest who oversees the house of God, and therefore he calls every single one of us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews is calling you and me 
to enter into the work of the New Testament priesthood because Jesus Christ is the high priest who gives us access into the Holy of Holies. He does that by his own death on the cross. Now remember, when Jesus died on the cross, what took place? The veil that separated the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies was torn in two pieces. That signifies to us that when Jesus died, he opened the way so that now we have access into the Holy of Holies to do the ministry of the priesthood. That's amazing. We won't develop that, but, but see that picture here. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. However, I'll admit, there's still something that's a little bit unsettling about all of this. I mean, here we are, we're looking into the temple, we're, we're, we're looking into the temple and into the Holy of Holies, and we're thinking, we're supposed to go in there? Wait a second. We know the holiness of God. We know our own sinful condition. We know that only the priests can go into the temple and serve in this capacity. So I think we should, if we're looking at this passage, begin to wonder, these are questions we should ask ourselves. How can I know for sure that I am personally a member of this New Testament priesthood in Christ? How do I know that I've been duly consecrated and set apart and sanctified for this great work? I want to draw near to God, but God, isn't there some kind of ordination process that I need to go through before I come waltzing into your holy presence? That's right. So that's, that's a little bit unsettling. And so I don't want you to miss it because I'm breaking up the passage very tediously uh, because I'm doing that to give you an appreciation of everything that's sort of condensed in these two verses. But the way it really, really flows is that if we are asking the question, it's a good question. How can we have access into the presence of God when that access is only given to priests? That's a good question. It shows that we're aware of the holiness of God, but the answer is provided for us right there in the text. In verse 22, this is how it flows. The writer says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There you can see, if you're patient, how all of these different elements come tied together now. There's the sprinkling of the blood. There's the sacrifice. There's the washing of the body with pure water. There's the baptism. And when he says that we have a high priest over the house of God, we can see that Jesus is the one who sprinkles. Jesus is the one who washes us with water. He's the one who sets us apart and gives us access into the presence of his father. All of these little elements come together. Now, if you look back to Leviticus chapter 8, there's two other things that we haven't seen, and I want to touch those briefly before we move on. What about the changing of the garments? We don't see that in Hebrews 10. What about the anointing with oil? We don't see that in Hebrews 10 either. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's important that you make the necessary connections in Scripture. So here I would present that in baptism there is a change that takes place and that change is described. It's likened unto the changing of our clothes. It's described 
in language that brings to mind the changing of our garments. So just like when the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says we are to put off the old man and we are to put on the new man which is created in God after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, what's really going on there? There's the putting off of the old man. Who's that? That's Adam. There's the putting on of the new man. Who's that? That is Jesus Christ. So in the same kind of language of changing our clothes, so we have the changing of the garments language associated very clearly with the sacrament of baptism. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, the apostle Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. Now, the language here gives us a clear picture of putting on a new set of clothes. But what does that have to do with the Christian life? What does that have to do with baptism? Why the imagery of changing our clothes and why is it attached to baptism? Paul wants us to see a beautiful picture that we put on Jesus Christ just like we put on a new and holy garment. And because we know that the putting on of a garment was part and parcel of the Old Testament ordination ceremony, I would present to you that we have a picture of the priesthood that we're entering into in baptism, which is the priesthood of Christ himself. Uh, The other thing that we should see here is that it's also true that there's a very strong connection between baptism and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So not just the garments, not just the sacrifice, the washing with water, but also the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just in the baptism of Jesus, although that's where the Father anointed Jesus, but it's in our baptism as well. And this would correspond to the anointing with oil. I'll give you one passage, although there's several different passages. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, this is the clearest passage. Peter said to the men who were listening to his voice, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you put all of this together, as as technical and tedious as it is, there are a few things that I think we should see clearly. First of all, the baptism of Jesus was in fact his ordination ceremony where he was washed and anointed as the high priest of his people. Second, when you and I were baptized, we were baptized into Jesus Christ and therefore into the offices of prophet, priest, and king. But here we're focusing on the priesthood because we too were washed and anointed for the work that God is now calling us to do as his people. It's because of that that you and I have the privileges and responsibilities of priests. How many times have you ever thought to yourself, I am a priest? Our job is to minister the word of God to one another. Our job is also to minister the word of God to the world around us. In that sense, we have an intercessory role. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. He's the head. We are his body. We enter into his intercessory work. And we are a mediator of sorts because we are the body of Christ. We are functioning in the priesthood of Jesus Christ for the world, but also within the church as well. And this intercession is beautiful. It also includes the prayers that we offer up to God. When we pray for one another in the body of Christ, we intercede in a priestly way 
And when we pray for the world around us, we also intercede for the world. And don't forget how much of an emphasis the Bible puts upon the worship. Don't forget how much of an emphasis the Bible puts on the liturgy. How does the Bible describe our worship but in sacrificial terms? In sacrificial terms because we are the universal priesthood of the Christian church. As baptized Christians, we have access into the temple, which is the church. We have access into the sanctuary as those who've been washed at the laver. What's the laver? The laver was like this baptismal font. It stood at the entrance to the tabernacle and the priests had to wash themselves before they could do the work of the ministry. Now that we're baptized, we have access to the table of showbread. What was the table of showbread? That was the food that was given to the priests. And now all baptized Christians have access to the table of showbread here at the Lord's table. This bread, this wine is for baptized Christians. Because we're priests, we get to partake of this bread. And here's a little picture for you. Just like Israel, you know, when Moses was talking to Pharaoh, he said, let my people go so that they might hold a feast to me in the wilderness. What was that feast? Well, when they got to the wilderness, what did they eat? The Lord rained down manna from heaven. There's the bread, a very, very significant typology of the Lord's Supper because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But before Israel ever got to the wilderness to be able to have access to the table of showbread and to partake of the heavenly manna, she first had to be baptized in the Red Sea. All of these things just fit together so beautifully. We could develop these things more. For the sake of time, I want to go quickly to the final point. And here I want us to think about the significance of ordination. But I'm going to do this briefly because we've spent a lot of time on it in the last two messages. So think of a man, maybe just think of me, um, who went through the process of ordination. This is a man, he goes through the process of ordination. Before I was ordained, I was not allowed to perform certain ministerial functions, certain duties. I, I couldn't do them. But now, by virtue of that ordination ceremony, my whole identity has been changed. I'm not just Paul Liberati. Who am I? I'm Pastor Paul Liberati. That's a real change in my identity. An objective, relational, covenantal transaction has taken place, and it took place in the ordination ceremony. So now it's my duty and it's my privilege to serve you as pastor of Church of the King. It's my duty and privilege to perform the work of a minister in a more official capacity. I can preach the word. I can administer the sacraments, I can perform weddings and funerals and do a host of other official things. But again, this is just a reminder of what we covered in the past two messages. So think about these dynamics. Even though the ordination ceremony changes a person's identity, it does not promise to change his heart. We saw that with adoption. If baptism is an adoption ceremony, we know that adoption has the power to change a person's identity, but it never promises to change the person's heart. If baptism is a wedding ceremony, we're reminded that a wedding ceremony has the power to change a person's identity, but it never promises to change the person's heart. 
This is why you can have a young child who grows up in, with his adopted family and one day he manifests the sad and unspeakable truth that he does not love his adoptive parents in return. Though they loved him, he didn't love in return. Same thing for a woman who's married. She can become an unfaithful bride. She can commit adultery and manifest an evil heart of unbelief, but it doesn't change the fact that she's married. So even though she's an unfaithful bride, she is still a bride. Even though that young son is a rebellious son, he is still a son because covenant is real. The same thing is true for ordination. You can ordain a man into the pastorate or the priesthood, and he could either be faithful or unfaithful. It doesn't change the fact that now I am Pastor Paul Liberati. If I go astray, it's not because I was never really ordained. Oh, I was certainly ordained. Covenant is real. I have real duties, real obligations, real privileges, real authority. But that ordination ceremony didn't promise to affect my heart. So objectively speaking, covenant is real and it changes identity, but it never promises to change the inward spiritual and subjective condition of my heart. Well, what I want to say to you today as we begin to close this message is that the same thing goes for us who are baptized. We are the sons of God by baptism. We are the bride of Christ by baptism. We are the universal priesthood of the New Testament church by baptism. Our job is to be faithful sons. We are to be a faithful bride. We are to be as faithful as we possibly can when it comes to our calling as the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. God has washed us with water God has anointed us with the Holy Spirit. God has covered us with the garments of Jesus Christ as with the beautiful garment of priestly ordination. And now God just delights in us. God delights to see us engaged in the work that we're called to do. It brings joy to the heart of our Heavenly Father to see us worshiping in spirit and in truth. It brings joy to Him when we intercede for the world in which we live and intercede for one another. God delights in the priestly sacrifices that we offer to him through Jesus Christ. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. And this is why Peter likewise reminds us in 1 Peter 2.9, saying, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As the body of Christ and the congregation of Church of the King Sacramento, Brothers and sisters, let us be faithful in all of these different aspects of our covenant relationship with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.